I think I was a senior in high school. I might have been in college. I don't remember. But we, uh, I, I could tell you where I was sitting in my house. I was sitting uh, right in front of my bed looking at my TV. I think I was playing Sega Genesis uh, when my mom and dad came in uh, to my room. And there was kind of this question in my mind of like, okay, this doesn't really happen a lot. I was a decently good kid, so I didn't have a lot of like, you're in trouble conversations. But they came into my room and mom said, hey, Jared, dad and I want to talk to you. I was like, okay, all right. My parents and I had a good relationship, so, you know, what's going on? She said, well, you know, your dad and I have been talking, and and we just want to tell you, we really think you should date more. (laughs) So many things went through my head in that moment. Like, A, am I really having this conversation? B, am I having this conversation with my mother? Like, what is happening here? See, I'd, I'd grown up in a Christian church, and so like I, I grew up in a home that was like a Christian family, and you know, dating was super important and super serious, and you only dated a girl if you knew you could marry her like that next day, and so like it was <laughs> phenomenal, right? And this was a phenomenon to me of this idea of just kind of coming and your parents saying that you would date someone. And so all the things went through my head, like first, like, let's just placate mom and dad and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's great. But like, just keep playing your video game and acting like this isn't happening. And then they decided to press and they were like, you know, like, we just, we just think like you could enjoy yourself a little bit more and have some fun and go on some dates and they can be all right. And I was in my mind at that point going, they're just not going to let this go. How in the world do I get out of this? Because... It was just mind-blowing to me that I was having that conversation with my mom, right? I thought that I had been doing this the right way. I thought that things had been going the right way. And all of a sudden, she came with this new idea, this new presentation of maybe you should try dating more. I was having trouble getting them to say yes anyway. So that, beside the point, it was still like a new question, a new perspective. And I didn't fully understand it. And here we are with Christ. He's been with his disciples for three years, day in, day out, and they are about to walk into a season in which he is going to leave them. And we call this passage the Great Commission. We call this passage the moment in which Christ gives to his disciples a new mission, a new purpose, a new perspective that was different from how they'd been living. It was different from how they'd been walking. And Christ is going to bring something great into their life. And so what I want to do this morning is look at what exactly is God asking of his people? What is it exactly that he's calling us to? And as we study this and we look at it, I think we find something really great. That as we see this text, go therefore and make disciples, we find that God continues our restoration by calling us to seek the restoration of others. The greatness of this commission is that God is continuing to seek our restoration by calling us to seek the restoration of others. And so I want to break this down in a couple different ways. And we're going to start here. That the greatness of this commission starts with the new purpose that we're being given by Jesus. Let's look in verse 19. Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, some of you may memorize this verse. This is a really popular popular verse within Christianity. So, so let's, let's look into this because there's some really key verbs here that the translations don't always capture what's really happening. First, let's look at this word go. This idea go is a participle. A participle in the Greek means something that you are continuing to do. It's something that has a continual action or effect on it. 
So what Jesus is saying to his disciples, the reason this is a new purpose for them is that Christ isn't talking about a one-time event. He isn't telling them one time you go, one time you try this thing, one time you accomplish this task of making disciples. This is now their new mindset. I've heard it said or described as, as you are going, therefore. That God is calling them to a new reality. That God is calling his people to a new perspective and a new purpose in their life. And what is that purpose? Make disciples of all nations. Not of the Jews, not just of the Gentiles, but of all nations. God's people are called to make disciples. The other thing I find that's interesting here is it doesn't say make converts. This does not tell you simply to bring people to a conversion place where they see that Christ is the one Savior that they need, that Christ is the one person who can rescue them from their sin. Conversion is phenomenal. Conversion is great. There are celebrations in heaven when people become converted to recognizing who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And yet, our call within the Great Commission, the new purpose that God has given to us, is to make disciples. This is more than just a conversion moment. This is more than just that one instance. And it fits so well with this participle form of the term go. That now our whole perspective in life is to point us towards making disciples of Jesus Christ. And these guys would know what that would look like. These 12 men who had walked with him for three years. These 12 men who hadn't had a place to lay their head down because they'd chosen to identify themselves with Jesus. They knew what discipleship was. They knew it was long-lasting. They knew it was more than just a moment. And so Christ is calling us to go therefore and make disciples. And this is our new purpose. We see it in how he describes what does it mean to make disciples. Because he gives us a couple of verbs here. He points out that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, these two things can be really problematic if we don't take a moment to break them down, right? Baptizing them, I think the natural question is, do I need to be a pastor? Is God's goal for each and every one of us, that each and every one of his people, is the goal that I become a pastor in order that I can baptize people and fulfill the Great Commission? The reality is no. That baptism in the early church looks different than how we did it here. And in the ancient Near East, as they would look at these type environments and, and they would look at baptism, these weren't just rites, these weren't just outward expressions of internal decisions, although it was certainly partly that. These were people who were coming to a teacher and were submitting themselves to a teaching. They were saying, I am now going to be associated with this man and this thing. And so what they would do in the early church is when you were baptized, you would have a friend come with you and you would come to the baptistry in filthy, dirty robes. And you would walk to the water with your friend beside you. And when you got to the water, your friend would help you take those robes off as you stepped into the water to be baptized. And then in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the church leader there would baptize you in that water. And as you got up and literally walked up on the other side of the baptistry, your friend was there to meet you with new garments that were white and new garments that were clean. 
because they recognize this friend is a part of the process of baptism. Maybe they aren't actually doing the actual dunking, right? But they are there with you. They are there for you because discipleship is about relationship. And discipleship grows where relationships grow. And so to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to be with someone. It's showing that you have a part of this process of initiating someone within to our Christian faith. That's why he uses the distinctly Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This isn't just living life with someone, although that's good. It's living life with someone intentionally to see them come to know the God of our Bible. And so Christ tells his disciples, God calls us to this new purpose of going, therefore, and making disciples. And the first way we do that is by baptizing them. And we realize baptism requires a relationship. Discipleship requires this relationship. And more than that, this next phrase is scary. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded to you. I thought about that this week. We've kind of said that, and then I was like, oh my I've got to teach everything that I've, like everything that Jesus has commanded, I'm responsible now to teach that to these people, right? That's how I disciple. Like, that's crazy. I can't get everything right. I don't know everything that Jesus says exactly right. And now I'm responsible to teach that to other people. If this is go therefore and make converts and you have to do that in a moment, how scary. And yet, this is go therefore and make disciples. And now you have a relationship and the length and the breadth of a relationship is the place in which we are engaging with and teaching others all that Christ has called us to obey. All of the commandments of God. God has called us to go and make disciples and in doing so, he's called us into something that's deeper than just a moment. He's called us to make choices that are sacrificial because we know that. Relationships aren't easy. And when we try to treat them like they're easy and when we try to just act like they're no big deal, then when things get hard, things go south real fast. But if you want to be involved in the spiritual health of someone else's life, if you want to be involved in seeing their restoration, then you have to have a relationship with them. God can use evangelism, and he does. He certainly does it throughout Scripture. And we are called to be ready for that and called to be prepared for that. But your purpose in life, the calling that God has now given to you as a Christian, is that your life should be defined by forming these relationships. And you want to know the beautiful thing about that? It's a complete reversal and restoration for you. If we look in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 127 was God creating man and woman. Genesis 128 says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing that God did after he made mankind was gave him a job to do. He gave him a job to do. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You know what happens in Genesis chapter three? Be fruitful and multiply gets corrupted by sin. As God tells Eve, there will be pain in your childbirth. And this thing that I meant for you to do is now broken. The work that God had for Adam and Eve, 
God tells Adam, there will be thorns and thistles as the ground literally is working against you because your work is broken. The purpose that God had given mankind became corrupted by sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so when God tells you, go therefore and make disciples, he's restoring to you the purpose that you were meant to live with. You were not intended to run around and chase your own desires and your own wants and the things that you think might help you out. And you know that when you've done that, you've been empty inside. You might have felt good for a minute, but then you've gone to sleep that night or later that week, and you've been just as empty as you were before because you weren't created to live for you. You were created in the image of God. You were created to live for a greater purpose. And so here in Matthew chapter 28, he looks at his people and he says to his disciples, here is the purpose that you need. Here is your restoration. Go and make disciples. Go do something greater than you. And so God has this wonderful, beautiful plan. I don't know if everyone in here has seen Lord of the Rings, but it's been long enough now that I don't have to do the spoiler alert thing, right? Like we don't have to go there. Okay. All right. So in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? The first Lord of the Rings movie, not the Hobbit, but the first Lord of the Rings, which you should read. It's great. Um, There are a couple major characters that are working. Gandalf, who is the wise wizard who is awesome and incredible, and Frodo, who's this little small hobbit who kind of just runs into this scenario where they find this evil ring, this ring that is, has the ability to give power uh, to the evil King Sauron, and he's looking for it. He's sending enemies after it. And so Gandalf tells Frodo, he said, hey, we need to go destroy this thing. I'm giving you this mission, and I'm going to go with you, but I need to go do this thing first. And so go meet me at this inn in this other city. And so Frodo takes off. He takes his buddy Sam. They literally run into two other hobbits along the way. And so these four little dudes are running, and they are running from the enemy. And you have this montage of these dark men and dark horses that are chasing them. And they get to this inn that Gandalf had told them to go to, and he's not there. Gandalf's not around. They run into a friend that he had sent to them, but there's still this question of where's Gandalf? Where is this one who had called us on this mission, who had asked us to go do this thing? Where is he? I need him. And as they then start going through the woods, they still are wondering and questioning, where is our friend? Where's Gandalf? Sure enough, the enemy catches up to them. And in it, Frodo is wounded. He's rescued, and when he wakes up from his injuries, the first face he sees is Gandalf. And in that joyous moment, Frodo asks, where were you? We were on this mission together, and you were not there beside me, and I needed you. Now, Gandalf had some good reasons, right? He kind of got thrown on top of a tower that he couldn't get off of, but the heartbeat of what Frodo asks is fair and just. When we go on a mission, we need these other people. We need someone to be alongside of us to help us through when the enemy is attacking, to help us when we stumble, to help us when we fall, to help us when we feel like we cannot get up. And that's discipleship. The call that God has given us is not just to step into someone's life for a moment and show them the greatness of the glory of God and the mission, but to be willing to walk with them through it. 
And so you can do that here in College Station. You can do that at work. You can do that even in your home with your kids or with your family. You can do that at school. You can do that sitting next to other students. In fact, God tells you you must, right? That that should be your perspective, that that should be what we are called to, and that if you are living a different way, you are living in the old ways. But God seeks to restore you and seeks to say that even even in your junior high or even in your high school or even at your work, you don't have to be a pastor to make disciples because you don't have to be a pastor to be in relationships with other people. And the restoration that God has given to you and to me to be able to say, here is a new purpose, now redefines everything that we do. And it means you look intentionally at those around you. But it also means you look intentionally at the world around you. Trey talked about perspectives earlier. If you've never done perspectives, literally, you will walk out this door when this thing's over, turn left, and there will be a table with people there. They will talk to you. Our launch global community that's here is awesome. They are people who are going to unreached people groups. And if your perspective has changed, if your new purpose is that I'm to go and make disciples, that means you are no longer driven by getting the best grades or getting into the best medical school. Although that's not bad, maybe that's a right thing for you, but maybe just maybe you need to make the choice to give up a week in the summer, to give up two weeks in the summer, to give up a year or two years, or to give up something because your purpose is defined not by money or success or relationships, but it is defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a new purpose, and it is a restoration for us to the way that God intended us to live. But not only has God given us a new purpose, he's also given us a new people. I love this. At the beginning of this verse, check this out, or this passage. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice Jesus didn't just give this purpose only to those who worshiped him. He gave it to the doubters too. That God looked at these people, worshipers or doubters, and said, my new people are not about spiritual perfection. It's not about spiritual performance. It's about the relationship that you have with me and being a part of this family. And so he calls all of us, worshiper worshiper or doubter, to be a part of this purpose because God has given to us a new people to be a part of. A new people who are defined not by your success or your capacity, not by your abilities or your strengths, but by the singular weakness that we all have and that we were not good enough to save ourselves and we desperately needed Jesus Christ. And so now we can come together. And the problem sometimes with Greek is it doesn't always carry forth and emphasize the way that maybe it could or should in our translations. So I've taken some liberties, if that's okay. And it might read something like this. Y'all go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Y'all baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Y'all teaching them to obey all that I have commanded y'all because... Jesus is talking to a group of people. He's talking to all y'all, all all right? (laughs) 
And we read the you's in that verse and we think singular. We think about me. But Jesus meant that we would go together. That we would do this together. Guys, we feel alone enough. We don't need to be alone in this. God has intended from the beginning of this commission that you would do this with a new group of people. It doesn't mean you can't. We're not talking new like you have to not talk to any of your old friends or not have any of those old relationships. New in the sense that Christ has made us new. New in the sense of how do we see the value in one another. So if you doubt, you're welcome here. If you're worshiping, worshiping, you're welcome here. If you're stumbling, you're welcome here. Because our identity is found in Christ and not in our performance. And we go and we make disciples and we baptize and we do these things together. Because that's what God's called us to. The awesome thing about this It's exactly what we needed. It's a restoration for us as we restore others together. In Genesis 2.18, God says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Um, Adam had been with God, uh, and everything that I was taught growing up is like, that's the pinnacle, right? If you can be alone with just you and God, that's great. And that is, that's good. But God says it is not good for Adam just to be by himself. And not have another human there with him. It's not good to be alone. So back to Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you remember, our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God. Three persons. He is necessarily personal. And so he's created us to be personal. He's created us for people. And what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Sin corrupts our relationships. Adam and Eve, for the first time, feel shame from one another, and they have to distance themselves from one another. God will tell Eve about the relationship with man and how it's going to become corrupted as well. And the two, the man and the wife, will fight, right? This thing that was supposed to be one flesh is now arguing with one another. They're now in combat with one another because sin has corrupted and broken the relationships that we have. And so Jesus says in the Great Commission, not only am I giving you a purpose, but I'm giving us a purpose. That you do this together because in a little taste of what's to come, just a little we get to see that God is restoring to us the right relationships that we're supposed to have. Not the ones that are defined by our failures and our weakness and our inabilities. Not the ones that are lived in fear and terror that they will see the struggles that I have, that they, this person would see the real me and would see how I falter and fail. Not ones that are constantly trying to sweep up the mistakes but a relationship that's defined by being able to glory in Jesus Christ and work together for the restoration of other people. My senior year of college, I was living with uh, some great guys who I'd really gotten close with, and and my wife, who was then my fiance, we were all getting ready to go to a football game. 
and so it was one of those like afternoon games that was playing a no-name team, and so it was going to be burning up hot, like I imagine it'll be next week here in Texas. Um, but we're getting ready for this game, and all of them are talking, and they're like, okay, we're going to blow this team out. And, uh, and so they were trying to make plans for, okay, if it's a blowout at halftime, we should all go and we can come back and we can hang out at the house and that kind of stuff. And I wanted them to feel the freedom to do that. That was fine. But for me, I was, I never imagined I'd be back here in college station. I had, uh, a, uh, unrequited love affair with college Aggie football. Um, and so it was one of those deals where I was going, I don't, I don't want to miss the game. I'm not going to leave. And so they kind of made all these plans and kind of at the end, I just said, Okay, uh, guys, that sounds great. That's awesome. I'll probably end up staying at the game, but you guys, man, feel free. That's, that's awesome. And they kind of started looking at me and were like, what? Are you seriously going to stay at the game by yourself? Like when all of us leave? And I wasn't joking when I said this. Like they started laughing after and I laughed too, like it was a joke, but I was serious. Like I looked at them and said, well, I won't be alone. We are the Aggies. The Aggies are we like in such earnestness. Like I really believe like everyone there is my friend and they just started dying laughing. But that was my perspective. I'm not alone if I'm Aggie, Aggie football game because I'm with, I'm with Aggie land, right? I'm with our friends. God, the heartbeat of God is that you would never, ever feel alone in this place. The heartbeat of the great commission is that you would know That no matter what you're going through and no matter where you're at, no matter how much I've wounded you or someone else in this room has wounded you who calls himself a Christian, the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is that all of us who believe in that can be in good relationship with one another. And God wants us to be able to have that. He wants this place to be that for you. And so the The greatness of the commission is the fact that not only does God give us a new purpose, but he gives us a new people to do it with, a new identity, a new standing with one another. And the last piece is a new promise. There's two promises here, and you might miss the second one, so we're going to break this down as well. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The first part is phenomenal, and we need to really catch this, especially for what it would have meant for the disciples. Jesus says, I am with you always. The Jews up until this point had lived in a reality in a society where God was separated from them by, uh, by this huge um, like curtain that was keeping people from the presence of God. And for us today, a lot of people will tell you rightly that God wants to have a relationship with you and wants to be close to you. But for the disciples, all they'd ever heard was that God was separate from them, that he was other, that he was holy, holy, holy. And they were still wrapping their mind around the fact that Jesus was the God man. And so the fact that the father was sending himself to be with them permanently, was sending the spirit to be with them permanently was mind blowing. But Jesus makes this promise anyway, I am with you always. When it's hard, when it's bad, doesn't matter. Are things good? I don't care. I'm here with you always. God himself is promising to be here always. Even when you feel like he's not there. Even when you think there's no way he could be here right now. He's promised that he will be there. And here's the other thing that might be even greater. I don't know. To the end of the age. 
This age will end. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I really need to be reminded of that. There's brokenness in this world because of sin, brokenness in me that I cannot overcome because of my weaknesses, and brokenness in the people that I love dearly that I would give everything that I have to be able to see fixed. And the reality is that I can't. And so Christ promises here in this verse, not only will he be here through the hard times, but that this time is coming to an end. That this age of brokenness and sin will end one day. And in those two promises, we have hope. And hope does not disappoint us. It's a hope we desperately need. It's a hope that we're desperate to have. It's a hope that allows us to make our way through. Because when we hope that these things are true, when we hope that God is with us, and when we hope that there will be an end, then you know what we do? We go with the people of God, accomplish the purpose of God, because now we are free. We're free to look at the things of this world and say, I will not be overcome by this temporary pain and suffering because I know that my Jesus is with me and my Jesus will bring an end to this. And now I want you to know it too. I want you to be restored. And I know that's a circular argument, and I know rhetorically I'm not supposed to make that argument, but isn't it beautiful that God has created this thing to fit together? Isn't it beautiful that God has created it such that when you need hope, the best thing that you can do is go and accomplish the purpose of God and be with the people of God because they remind you of his goodness. And when you have hope, the best thing that you can do is to go and accomplish the purpose of God and be with the people of God. As an outflow, as an outpouring, it's meant to work together because our God in his greatness and his grandeur has created this thing with such wisdom and complexity that we can be about something so much greater than ourselves and yet experience such richness within ourselves. Do not confuse me. This is not your best life now. This is not motivated by the perception that you come to do this because it's going to be beneficial for you. No, you do this because our God is the wisest God in the entire universe. He is the only God, and he knows exactly how you've been made and created. And he takes the weaknesses and the fallenness and the brokenness of this world, and he says, here is something great. Go, therefore. And it starts with that hope. The first date my wife and I went on was after a... um, this wasn't the best idea I've ever had. It was after an intramural softball game, so it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I, it was bad. But we went to Sweet Eugene's, which was great. Love sweets. Um, and I took, I took her there, and I can show you the couches that we were sitting on. And I don't really know how the conversation went this way, but I, I'm trying to focus on her, but also like thinking about, okay, what am I doing with my hands, and what am I going to say next? Um, and she's talking, and at one point, uh, she caught my attention because she said, um, yeah, and I'm just, I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy being single right now. <laughs> and in that moment, it was, it, it was kind of like, all right, mom, I tried this dating thing. Um, but uh, no, in that moment, I caught myself and thought, all right, what, what do I want to do from here? Because this, this woman has said, yes, I'll go on a date with you. But here in this moment, in this circumstance, she just told me she wants to be single. And it would be super creepy to not listen to her and let her do that. And I chose to be creepy. Like, I chose. (laughs) But I had that moment. 
And, and I'll, I really will never forget it. The whole mental process in my mind of, do I stick with this because of the hope that I have? Or do I let go because of the circumstances? And in something that was completely uncharacteristic for me, I said, I'm going to hang on because I think something's real here and I want to be a part of it. And even though it's hard, it's richer than anything I've ever been around. And we got married, so yeah. (laughs) But the reality is that God has given to you this same hope. He said to you, I am with you always to the end, and the end is coming of this age. And you can take that, and when the circumstances come and they get hard, you will question because there's some doubters. You're welcome to be a doubter in this community. But God wants you to walk in that hope. And the beautiful thing is this, is restorative for us as well. In Genesis chapter 3, at the end of this time, where God has been talking through what's going to happen because of sin, he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. And therefore the Lord sent them out, sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim of a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, cherubim are like really, really not like cute angels, but like scary ones. And I, the flaming sword was enough for me. Thank you. Um, there was no way to get there. No way to get back to what God had intended us for and created us for. We had no hope. But he gave us hope. And in this promise, in this new promise of the Great Commission, we have hope that this age of separation, that this age of our distance from what God had intended for us will come to an end and Christ will be with us the whole way. And the beauty of that restoration gives us hope. And so this Great Commission is great because he is with us always to the end of the age. We have a new purpose, a new people, and a new promise because God continues our restoration by calling us to seek the restoration of others. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to ask some of the band to come up. We're going to have some of the men step back. Why would we do that? Why would that be important this morning? Because the truth of the matter is that this purpose, these people, these promises do not come without the work of Jesus Christ. And let's be very, very clear right now. Each and every one of us was fallen and broken because of sin. Unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything. And and look, I know that at church we say that a lot, like we talk about that. But guys, that is true. It feels a little different because we're rescued now because of Christ. But the reality is that that is true. Without Jesus, it was over. We were enemies of him, enemies of God, deserving of death and eternal punishment. And Jesus looked at us. There is his enemies and said, I'll go to them. I will go and offer myself to them in order that they might know God. And so Christ came to this earth. He lived and he died. And he was buried in a tomb and then he rose from the grave so that anyone who believes, 
any person who believes in him as the only way to be saved has that right standing with God. It's not about spiritual performance. It's not about worshiper, worshiper or doubter. If you have faith, even a little nugget, you can move them out. And so God, through Christ, saved us and rescued us. And he offers to us this beautiful commission that restores us and restores others. And so now we have the opportunity to celebrate who Christ is and what he's done. So as the men come down this morning, what I want you to do is spend some time in prayer. First, if there's sin in your life, if there's things that are distancing you and your relationship with the Lord, confess that to him. This isn't about performance. He wants you to come and be honest, to come and turn to him. But then secondly, find a thing to celebrate of who God is. Are we celebrating the fact that God has given you a new purpose? Maybe you've been wandering aimlessly. You've not really known how you're making your choices in your life and you feel stuck. God is giving something new to you. Maybe it's people. Maybe you felt isolated and lonely. And what you're doing today is celebrating God for knowing that and for providing for you a people. It's not perfect, but they're there. And finally, maybe you celebrate this new promise because you were just all out of hope. Let's spend some time in prayer and then we'll take communion together.